Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. In this episode of The Bell Tell. Yes, 71.12%. That was the voice of Pat Bradley announcing the results of the Good Friday Agreement referendum in 1998 to a packed audience in the King's Hall, Belfast. It was the pinnacle of his career as Northern Ireland's chief electoral officer, where he had the job of delivering fair and open elections during the worst days of the Troubles. Today's bomb was only just round the corner from St Anne's Cathedral, and it was straight opposite one of Friday's two bombs. So within the space of a few days, the centre has been shattered three times. From paramilitary threats to voter fraud and a career around the world in some of the most troubled hotspots, he's written about his experiences in his new memoir, Ballots, Bombs and Bullets. Pat Bradley, thank you very much for coming in. You're welcome. I, w- I want to go back to 1973. First of all, that's the year you first took the, the job of Deputy Electoral Officer while living in Derry. And this is the time when the city was still in shock from the events of Bloody Sunday and paramilitary activity was very much on the rise. And at the time, there was even some people who wouldn't accept any British run election and were prepared to stop them by any means. So this really made you a potential target at the time. Why did you want to take the job? Well, the main reason was that I had a job which was becoming redundant. And I had to get a job at home because my parents were living by themselves. The rest of the family were away. So I was determined because I had, in the past, in Derry, organised a lot of work to try and get more development of the city. So I saw the need to bring people together, to work together, to enhance the city and enhance Northern Ireland overall. And that's the reason why I took the job. And to add to your problems, uh, you talk in the book about receiving quite a sinister phone call in your office. Can you tell me about that? Well, at that time, anybody who's involved in elections or anything at all to do with governments were supporting the British government and the Northern Ireland government by those who were strongly nationalistic in output. But I saw it a different way. I saw the need to bring people together, as I said, to develop the city, develop the province, and above all, to stop people having to leave home to go to England to get work. And and what were you told in, in that phone call? I understand it was from an anonymous person. It was a very cold voice. 
I simply said I would not be allowed to run elections. I replied in a very calm voice, You don't know me. I can be very thran. I can assure you I will, not, I will run the elections. And then I hung up. And, I mean, did that make you nervous or, or did your calling to this job just give you that courage? Well, I thought two ways. Firstly, I thought that with the trouble in Derry and the bombs going off all the time and the anti-government attitude of a lot of people, I thought it was a threat. But on the other hand, I said to myself, it could well be some guy playing a joke as he saw it. So I decided not to mention it to anybody else. And the, the following day, there was actually a bomb scare in the office ne- next to yours? There was a bomb placed on the other side of the wall of my office, beside my desk. But again, I said to myself, is this deliberate? Or is it part of the bombing campaign being carried out within the city to blow up as much of the property as possible? So I simply said, that's it, I'm going, I'm going to go ahead. So just a few weeks into the job, you got what you called your baptism of fire whenever a snap general election uh, was called. Um, what was that experience like just to be thrown into that so quickly? I was dropped in, I think, rather than thrown in. I did not have any education or training whatsoever. The then chief elected officer told me to read a book behind me in my bookcase, which is the Representation of the People Act. You know, it did not tell you exactly what you had to do in the sense of practicalities. It said what the law demanded to be done. But I had no experience. But as I said before to you, I was determined to prove myself and to try and bring forward peace and quiet to Derry. So the first polling day was on February 28th, 1974. And some of the things you had to deal with included, you know, petrol bombs being thrown at a, a polling station in Cregan, but you took the decision that it wasn't right to, to close it. Uh, wh- why did you think that at the time? Well, firstly, there was an ongoing situation with trouble within the city. Even other polling stations, they bring in the ballot boxes. There was attacks launched with stones and sometimes petrol bombs. Secondly, When I actually decided myself to go ahead and carry the thing through, I got a message to say that a school at Cregan was being attacked with petrol bombs and the people were not coming in to vote. Now, the first thing I felt was this. I can't ask people to go somewhere and do things I wouldn't do myself. So I recruited a volunteer from my casual staff and we went to the polling station via a Land Rover, armoured Land Rover, to keep me safe from petrol bombs. And then we evacuated the staff using the same vehicle. And this guy and I took over the running of the polling station. And surprisingly enough, after about an hour or so, and some phone calls which tried to intimidate me, the damage of petrol bombs decreased and things got quiet. And then people started to come in to vote. And I knew then that I had turned the situation around. 
And that, that was important to you that, you know, the, the consequences of actually closing it um, and calling into question the results of the vote, that could have been quite serious and you wanted to avoid that? Well, I did not know at the time, but I reckoned at the time that if I closed the polling station, they could call into account the veracity of the election. And it might require the election to be rescheduled with a repeat performance. And I didn't want that. That day, there was also some quite unusual incidents that you were called to deal with. Um, you had to assist some nuns who were trying to vote in the the more unionist waterside area of the city. What do you remember about that? Well, what happened was I got a phone call from a politician, unionist politician, whom I knew reasonably well, and he said there was a problem in the waterside polling station concerned. So I went over there, and I knew the school is a primary school, and suddenly when I went up to the double gates leading into the grounds, I saw the largest flag I ever saw in my life, a union flag, which covered the whole entrance to the gates. And if you wanted to go into the school to vote, you had to lift the corner of the flag. Now, it so happened at the fringe of that particular location, there was a comet of nuns. And they arrived down to vote, and they would not touch the flag or go in. So they made a complaint to a nationalist politician who then complained to me. So I went down, and lo and behold, I saw the biggest flag, as I said. But I noticed at the bottom of the flag, it had laid on the pavement because so long, and it got very wet. So I looked around, and there were a lot of kids running around, shouting and whatnot, but I saw a couple of older people nearby. So I remembered there was a rumour of a television programme being taken around that part of the constituency. So I went over to these people who I reckoned were the leaders of the organisation concerned. And I said, look, I said, are you going to see with pleasure the flag being shown on television, wet and stained at the bottom? I said, for God's sake, take the flag down before the TV comes. The guys read them, they took them down. So if we go forward a few years to 1981, that's the year that you take the, the top job as the the chief electoral officer, you, you already face a very big event that year with the election of the IRA hunger striker, Bobby Sands. 492, West Henry W, Ulster Unionist, 29,046. And I declare that Bobby Sands has been duly elected to serve as a member for the third constituency. And you talk about that as a key moment for politics in Northern Ireland. What made that so important? Well, firstly, the hunger strike had raised the tension on both sides in Northern Ireland. And the election was in Fermanagh, South Tyrone, which is a very marginal constituency seat. And it was run by one of my deputy officers. But then I sort of realised that when the Sinn Féin candidate stood. He was a he was a hunger striker. I reckoned that it was an intent by the provisional people to get publicity for their campaign. And then when he was elected, 
I think it suddenly dawned upon them that there was mileage in democracy as well. So they put up another candidate who was an election agent of Bobby Sands when he died. And lo and behold, he got it. So I think that was a turning point, a very crucial turning point, accidental turning point, whereby suddenly, in addition to the actual military campaign, a campaign of politics may provide results. A big thing you talk about as part of your career in the book is tackling voter fraud. So everybody knows this phrase, vote early, vote often. That came from Terence O'Neill, didn't it? I can't remember, but it's certainly a well-known phrase, vote early, vote often. In fact, in the book, I have information reporting that both sides actually indulged in that. But there was a non-written rule. A person could personate a person of their own religion or political opinion if they got away with it. Not no problem. But it was not a fair thing to do it against the opposition's candidate, a person who is a different persuasion. So you, you personate it within your own community and not cross-community. And this really seemed to be accepted. It was almost like a, a gentleman's agreement for, it was for a, a long time. A, it was an agreement on both sides. Don't cross the divide. If you don't do that, well, that's okay, basically. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? It's very hard to imagine. <laughs> and uh, was it in the 1980s, though, that it, uh, it escalated uh, a little too quickly for people's liking? Well, in the 1980s, Things became quite serious in terms of the divide between both communities because, you know, people suffered a lot with bombs and whatnot. Tensions had arisen. And what happened then was that the parties started to get more organised in personation. The previous unstated rules were ignored as a matter of vote as often as you can for as many people as you can, whether exist or not. And that was a deepening of the divide within the communities. So one of the, the big things you did to tackle this was it was all about uh, asking people to present proper ID at the election counts? Well, I did indicate to the Secretary of State what was going on. I said, look, this is not acceptable. It's not democracy. We have to do something about it. And he said to me, what do you think we should do? But I said some form of identification cards. Well, that was a bad mistake on my part because the Unionist community did not want to have a different situation in Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. So then I went back and said, look, what we should do is actually ask people to use an existing identification document to show who they are. And that's what's happened. So it was not no different from anywhere else in the UK because people had a driving licence they had a passport, etc. So it was not a new innovation. And that's how I started to get the thing under control. Well, if we can move forward another few years um, uh, to the, the day of the Good Friday Agreement referendum announcement. It's 1998. And as I said, you're in a packed King's Hall with media from all around the world, all pushing to get the, the best position as you're about to come out and make the announcement. Can I ask you, what, what do you remember the atmosphere as being like that morning? And were you worried about 
how people were going to react whenever you read the result? Certainly I was concerned because at elections, at such a vital situation, there could be a, a, t- a tussle between the different factions when the results be announced. But as well as that, I realised there's tension in the hall. When I came out to announce the election result, remember, there were no candidates who stood at that election. It was a referendum. There were no candidates at the polling stations. There were no candidates uh, watching keenly the curtain of the votes. Well, what I had done, I had a camera set up showing what was happening at the count within the hall that people could see from outside the rails. But I also realised that if I came out with actually starting to do the normal things about the number of votes cast, the number of invalid votes cast, the actual tension in the hall was palpable. I could feel it myself. So for the first time in my life, I said, I'm going to do it my way. So I turned around and I said that the result of the election was as follows. I give the percentage yes, the percentage no. Because the big issue between the parties was the unionist parties combined felt there had to be at least 70% of the people to approve the referendum to make it valid. And I was worried if suddenly people started to get a bit annoyed, a bit excited, and the facts might start to fight with each other. So I went straight for the target and announced the number of votes cast for the referendum and the number of votes against it. Yes, 71.12%. And the whole started to calm down and people started to celebrate. So that diffused the potential situation that I was frightened about. One thing you were very proud of is that, like it or not, people accepted the results and that the referendum had been run fairly. Well, I think that I had established myself as a truly independent officer and I had gone against the opinion sometimes of the government and I applied things irrespective of who you were. I didn't care who you were. All I wanted to make sure was that if you were entitled to something, you got it. I think people have begun to realise that. And to my mind, I think I proved myself on that day that I was an independent officer carrying out fair and equitable elections according to the law. And if they want to have a change made, change the law and I apply a new law. That famous moment was revisited recently with the finale of Dairy Girls. I don't know if you're aware, but there was a, a clip of you reading out that result was featured in it and uh, seen by millions again across the UK. Um, what, what did you make of that, just being featured in something like that? Well, I did not know I was featured because I was tired. and I was sitting in the house and I decided to rest for a while. And suddenly people said to me, I like your feature and the Dairy Girls. And I didn't know what they're talking about <laughs> until somebody else told me what actually happened. But that shot of me announcing the result has been shown many, many times down the years on television, both here and elsewhere throughout the world. Just to talk about your international career as well, which has been really considerable. Um, I think you've been to about 23 countries around the world to, to help with elections. Is that right? Uh, over 30 countries in total. But nice of fact, 
I did not apply to go abroad. Rather, I was approached quite often. For example, the first people who approached me was the Boers from South Africa. But I said no because they were part of the community in South Africa. And if I went out for them, that would be a partisan situation. So I said no. Now, some people who went abroad at that time would come out and tell the different countries how you run elections using their own system as the right way to do it. I didn't do that approach because you can't compare a high-educated country, basically in America or Britain, with a very poor, economically not viable country in South Africa or any part of Africa or Asia. So I went out when I was invited and said, I have experience of running elections in difficult situations. I've learned something. Can I help you? As opposed to say, this is the way to do it. And I think that made a big difference for me. In, in 1994, that was, of course, the election when Nelson Mandela was elected as president. Um, I, you sort of reflected that at the end that the election may not have been fair to everybody just because of the difficulties of delivering it on the ground, but you felt confident overall that that was the will of the South African people? Some of the technicalities were not 100%. In fact, to be honest, I think that the actual allocation of seats in parts of South Africa was not publicly announced properly. I think some of the smaller chiefs who had their own parties were not being represented, I think, in the, or on the normal result. But the parties got together and they made an allocation of seats arbitrary so they'd actually have a community coming together throughout South Africa. So it was not totally fair, but it was valid to a great extent. This is one of the most important moments in the life of our country. I stand before you filled with deep pride and joy. Pride in the ordinary, humble people of this country. Uh, when we look at the recent assembly elections, um, there's obviously been a political deadlock afterwards. Um, I want to ask you, with your perspective of seeing places around the world where we have problems much greater than our own here in Northern Ireland, I mean, what... What does that make you think whenever you see the current deadlock that we have here? What I saw abroad in those countries, two camps, as it were, those countries that came together, accepted their differences, and negotiated a modus operandi. And those countries who didn't do that and maintained their opposition to each other, which continued with murder and mayhem, and the country being attacked and a lot of people killed, a lot of property ruined. So I was hoping that the book would illustrate the two categories. Those countries that have actually been successful and those countries who did not even try to be successful but maintained their own way. So I've got a very basic comment to make. I say, let us start to build bridges and not dig trenches. You've been listening to Pat Bradley, Northern Ireland's former Chief Electoral Officer and author of Ballots, 
bombs and bullets. You can get Pat's book online at etsy.com by searching Ballot Book. Today's episode of The Bell Tell was produced by me, Alan Preston, with sound design by Graham Davidson. Archive clips were from AP, ITV, Channel 4, BBC. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a €75 O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.